On the 18th of June, 1787, Robert Burns, smarting from a recent brush with the Edinburgh Literati, wrote to his friend William Nicholl, I have bought a pocket Milton, which I carry perpetually about with me in order to study the sentiments, the dauntless magnanimity, the intrepid, unyielding independence, the desperate daring, and the noble defiance of hardship in that great personage, Satan. Whilst a great admirer of Milton's vaulting anti-hero, Burns had at this point already written a more satirical look at that great personage in his poem, Address to the Deal. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about Address to the Deal by Robert Burns. Last week was Burns Night, 25th of January, the night on which people around the world celebrate Scotland's most famous poet, Robert Burns. According to a study done last year, there are somewhere in the region of 2,500 Burns suppers held worldwide every year, a testament to the enduring affection for the bard. Burns spent only a few months in Edinburgh, but the city has been dining out on that connection ever since despite its sometimes haughty treatment of the ploughman poet. And here at Edinburgh's Most Powerful Book Podcast, I couldn't possibly pass up the chance to do the same. So today I will be reading an early comic poem by Burns and providing some critical commentary. If you want to hear a bit more about Burns and his time in Edinburgh, I talked quite a bit about his stay on the previous episode I did on Burns, last Burns Night 2021, uh, which was an episode on Tamashanta. I'll leave a link to it in the episode description box below. Before we get into it, if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving me a positive review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, subscribing if you're watching on YouTube, and uh, now you can even buy me a coffee using the coffee link in the episode description box as well. I should stress that while I am officially Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast, that is mainly referring to my military dominance and not wealth. So, address to the deal a poem that Nigel Leask calls a masterpiece of sceptical burlesque. Now, I, yes, I will be using the Scots versions of words, deal, not devil, as Burns wrote it, and I'm afraid that does mean I will be hazarding an accent throughout. I apologise in advance for where it slips, as it surely will, but there is no point trying to read a poem like this and clutching on to the Queen's English. The poem first appeared in what is now known as the Kilmarnock edition of poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect. As the title indicates, it does contain some poems written in English, but they're just not as fun. As a contemporary reviewer from The Lounger wrote, the few of Burns's productions that were almost English tended to be of the graver style. Burns received special praise for his comic poems, and perhaps it is no surprise that the funnier ones tended to be the ones written in Scots. In today's poem, Burns' speaker appeals to the devil to give poor dogs like him a rest, if nothing else, for his own good. And here Burns was taking part in a national tradition. As Maurice Lindsay writes, Scottish poets from Dunbar onwards have adopted a tone of bantering familiarity with the devil. Following the Kilmarnock edition of his poems in 1786, there followed two two-volume Edinburgh editions, the first in 1787 and the second in 1793. This second edition carried for the first time our last Burns poem, Tamashanta, in which the devil is again undermined, described as a towsy tyke, and depicted as merely an accompanist. 
screwing the pipes as the witches and warlocks dance. The idea for this earlier address to the devil was suggested to Burns, according to his brother Gilbert, by running over in his mind the many ludicrous accounts and representations we have from various quarters of this august personage. As we shall see, these included the traditional fallen angel, an enemy of God, the intoxicating figure found in Milton's Paradise Lost, and the cosier, towsy tykes of Scottish folklore. In the Canongate Burns, Andrew Noble and Patrick Scott Hogg say the poem is now generally accepted as a relatively lightweight piece of near-comic knockabout, as Burns mocks the allegedly fast-fading figure of the devil from his hitherto central role in Scottish theology. But Burns's comic knockabout also ridiculed some of the Calvinist principles held by the Kirk, something we'll look at in more detail as we go through the poem. Although Gilbert Burns claimed it was the winter of 1784 that his brother first repeated his address to the deal, it is generally thought that Robert actually wrote the poem the following year at Mosgiel in Ayrshire, before its publication in 1786 as part of the Kilmarnock edition. Burns prefaces his poem with a quote from Milton. O prince, O chief of many throned powers that led the embattled seraphim to war. This, of course, is from Paradise Lost, referring to Satan, and functions as a way of setting up Burns's first stanza. O thou, whatever title suit thee, old horny Satan Nick or Clutie, what in yon cavern grim and sooty, closed under hatches, spergs about the brunstein cootie to scored poor wretches. So we immediately have the sense of a fall in status, from Milton's prince and chief of many throned powers, to you, whatever your name is. The direct address of you also establishes straight away a sense of intimacy between the addresser and the subject. With old horny, Satan, Nick or Clutie, we have a diverse sample of the many ways in which the devil has been represented. The chummy, familiar way, old horny, the serious, Satan, then Nick, the nickname for both Satan and his anagram, Santa. It's not entirely clear how Nick or Old Nick came to be associated with Satan, but some suggest a connection to an old English shape-shifting water spirit called Nickor in Beowulf, uh, which possesses similar characteristics to a Grindylo. Others suggest a connection to yet another of Satan's nicknames, Old Scratch, Old Nick, Old Scratch. Then we have Clutie, a wonderful Scots way of rendering hoofy, referring to Satan's cloven feet. Why in yon cavern grim and sooty, closed under hatches, spergs about the Brunstein cootie to scored poor wretches. So down in your grim, sooty cavern, presumably hell, where he splashes about the brimstone dish to scald poor wretches. Now the second stanza. Hear me, old hangy, for a wee, and let poor damned bodies be. I'm sure small pleasure it can gie, even to a deal, to skelp and scod poor dogs like me, and hear a squeal. Pretty straightforward one, vocabulary-wise. I thought skelp would be scalp, but it's closer to slap or spank. Um, he calls the devil old hangy this time, old hangman, the executioner supreme. I'm sure small pleasure it can gie, even to a deal, to skelp and scord poor dogs like me, and hear a squeal. So having introduced 
the august personage with all these names, Burns' speaker begins to undermine his subject by pointing out how, how small time he is, scalping and scalding poor dogs, hearing them squeal. Doesn't the devil have better things to do? In Milton, he was leading an army of rebel angels against God himself, and now he almost resembles Puck from A Midsummer Night's Dream, meddling with poor defenceless mortals. Great is thy power and great thy fame, far kenned and noted is thy name, and though yon lowin hooks thy hame, thou travels far, and faith thou's neither lag nor lame, nor blate nor scar. So a bit more blowing smoke here as the speaker says how great the devil is in power and fame, far kenned, far known, and noted is his name. And though yon lowin hooks thy hame, lowin hook, meaning moaning hollow. Despite having a moaning hollow for a home, says the poet, you're not lag or lame, backward or lame, nor blate nor scour, not bashful or afraid. I think we'd be safe to read a, a fair amount of sarcasm into this. The speaker is treating the devil in a way that predicts the poet's own treatment at the hands of the Edinburgh Hoipoloi and other enlightened critics. Dr. Robert Anderson, writing in the Edinburgh Magazine in October 1786, predicted the kind of inquisition the ploughman poet would receive. Who are you, Mr. Burns, will some surly critic say? At what university have you been educated? What languages do you understand? What authors have you particularly studied? Has Aristotle or Horace directed your taste? Who has praised your poems, and under whose patronage are they published? In short, what qualifications entitle you to instruct or entertain us? Even some critics enamoured with Burns regarded him as a kind of rustic anomaly, which undoubtedly Burns found grating. Which is why, in this early poem written before his Edinburgh visit, it is quite ironic to find the poet sarcastically applauding the devil. For despite coming from a Lewin hook, he has managed to not be backward, not lame, nor bashful, nor afraid. Whilst ranging like a roaring lion, for prey a holes and corners trying, whiles on the strong wind tempests flying, turling the kirks, whilst in the human bosom prying, unseen thou lurks. So more dubious acclaim, ranging like a roaring lion, well, that's more like it, but trying holes and corners? Sounds more like he's after the preferred prey of a house cat, not a lion. On the strong wind, tempests flying, turling the kirks. What a lovely line. Meaning, stripping the churches. And we'll come back to how Burns is himself turling the kirks shortly. I wish I could roll my R's better for that. Um, Whilst in the human bosom prying, unseen thou lurks. Again, I think we have a fairly obvious bawdy double meaning. Lurking in the human heart, as the devil does. Possessing the weak-willed and vulnerable but also prying in someone's bosom. The deal is copping a feel. I've heard my reverend Grony say, in lanely glens ye like to stray, or where old ruined castles grey nod to the moon. Ye freight the nightly wanderer's way with eldritch croon. That's one of those stanzas where it feels like every sound is in exactly the right place. I love the old ruined castles grey which nod to the moon. Having old castles nod to the moon would be a memorable line in prose, but in this stanza form, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail in a second, 
you have these three long lines, then a short one. And to have that shorter line nod to the moon works so well. It's like the line actually performs a little abbreviated nod. You freight the nightly wanderers way with eldritch croon. You fright the nightly wanderers away with an eldritch, meaning airy, unearthly croon. So here we get a sense of the folkloric devil, literally the old granny's tale version. Burns may have had in mind a maid, not his actual granny, called Betsy Davidson, who knew his mother in Ayrshire and about whom he later recalled she had the largest collection in the county of tales and songs concerning devils, ghosts, fairies, brownies, witches, warlocks, spunkies, kelpies, elf candles, deadlights, wraiths, apparitions, cantrapes, giants, enchanted towers, dragons, and other trumpery. This cultivated the latent seeds of poesy, but had so strong an effect on my imagination that to this hour, in my nocturnal rambles, I sometimes keep a sharp lookout in suspicious places. And though nobody can be more sceptical in these matters than I, yet it often takes an effort of philosophy to shake off these idle terrors. Burns here is describing a sensibility that is surely ideal for a poet, a kind of paradoxical mix of credulousness and cynicism, as Ted Cowan has described him, a superstitious sceptic. On with the next stanza then. When twilight did my grony summon to say her prayers, douse honest woman, aft yont the dyke she heard ye bummin with eerie drone, or rustling through the bow trees coming with heavy groan. So the devil's been spooking a poor, douse, honest woman, a sober, prudent, honest woman. After yon the dyke, she's heard you bummin with eerie drone. It sort of throws you for a second, that line, but I don't think it means what it sounds like. Firstly, after yon the dyke, sort of beyond or away, past the dyke, she's heard you, not bumming with an eerie drone, but as far as I can tell, consulting the Scots Dictionary, bum your chaff means to put something over on someone, to trick someone, which kind of fits with the devil. The annotated editions of this poem are strangely silent on the word bummin, so either it's a very common word that I just haven't encountered, or it's a bit mysterious. Get in touch if you've got any theories, and no need to keep it clean. Moving on. A dreary, windy winter night, the stars shot down with squinting light. Were you mesel I got a fright, I yont the loch. Ye like a rash bus stood in sight, we rave in soch. So, a dreary, A-A-E, meaning one, like a fond kiss. One dreary, windy winter night, the poet says. The star shot down with sclentin, slanting light. I'm sure you could guess that one. Were you may sail a gatta freight, not satisfied with eerily bumming at granny, the devil has got me too. Ayont the loch, beyond the loch. Not quite sure how to pronounce loch, L-O-U-G-H. I'm, I'm going with loch. Ye like a rash bus, a, meaning a clump of rushes, stood in sight with waving soch, sigh. So like a waving wail. Again, I'm following the rhyme scheme on pronunciation there, and apologies if you think it should be something different. The cudgel in my neve did shake, each bristled hair stood like a steak, and with an eldritch store, quake, quake, among the springs, away ye squattered like a drake on whistling wings. 
So we've got a comic anticlimax in this stanza. The cudgel in his fist began to shake. Each hair was standing on end. Another eldritch sound, stur, harsh, quick, quick, quack, quack. And from the springs appears a squattering drake. What the poets fearfully imagined to be the devil turns out to be a duck. This sort of earthly bathos is in keeping with the verse form Burns uses for his address. These stanzas are known as habby stanzas, which, as J. Walter McGinty says, had a tradition of use as a form for carrying a mock elegy. The habby stanza took its name from a 17th century poem by Robert Semphill called Life and Death of Habby Simpson, the Piper of Kilbarken. Some of the later poets who used it, as McGinty notes, included William Hamilton of Bilberfield for his Last Words of Benny Heck, a famous greyhound, and Alan Ramsey, who coined the name and used it for an elegy for a dying cow. Burns himself uses it for an elegy later on in the Kilmarnock edition for a sheep called Maisie. It is a six-line stanza, which, as you've no doubt picked up on, has a simple rhyme scheme of A-A-A-B-A-B. The two B lines being shorter, as in nod to the moon. You can hear how this lends itself to anticlimax as you drum up a galloping rhythm in those first three lines and then suddenly come up short. I've heard my reverend Grony say, in lanely glens you like to stray, or where old ruined castles grey, nod to the moon. So that's Habby stanzas. Let's hear the next one. Let warlocks grim and withered hags tell how we you on ragweed nags. They skim the moors on dizzy crags with wicked speed, and in kirkyards renew their leagues o'er howkit deed. <laughs> so more attesting to the devil's activities, riding on ragweed or ragwort horses. Either this means supernatural horses of some kind, or perhaps poison horses, ragwort being a poisonous weed along with his warlocks and hags in tow, skimming the moors and cliff tops, and then renewing their leagues over the unburied dead in a churchyard, or perhaps even those they have raised from the dead. Our haukit deed. Struggled with that line a bit. Thence contra wives, with toil and pain, me plunge and plunge the kern in vain, for o' oh, the yellow treasures tain by witchin' skill, and dot at twalpint hawkies gain, as yells the bill. Here we have some mischief that's even closer to that of Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now the devil is bothering country wives who plunge and plunge at the churn in vain, in vain since the yellow treasure, butter, has been stolen by witchcraft. And dot it twelpint hawkies gain, another line I struggled with, meaning the petted or beloved twelvepint cow is gone as well, as yells the bill, dry as the bull. Here we couldn't be further from the Satan of the New Testament or Milton. This is the behaviour of a devious wood elf or a spunky. Burns, as we heard from that letter I read in the intro to the podcast, had a great admiration for Milton's depiction of Satan. As J. Walter McGinty writes, Milton's Satan was Burns's kind of man. He could relate to him because although Satan was flawed, one who had even defied God and was now a fallen angel, yet there remained in him some of the qualities that had once earned him place in heaven. As we shall see, Burns left himself open to charges of defying God, even if he was only really waging war on particular practices of the church. Burns didn't need to be irreligious to recognise the qualities of the devil, as seen in Paradise Lost, 
As Fiona Stafford says, for Burns, as for his radical heirs, like Blake, Godwin, Byron and Shelley, Milton Satan was the champion of the oppressed and the eloquent opponent of tyranny. While Burns' own depiction of Satan is much reduced from his epic appearance in Paradise Lost, something of his swagger is appropriated for Burns' narrator. As Carol McGurk has noticed, Burns' speakers will be proud and dangerous, adapting every instance of literary bad attitude he can remember from his close study of Milton's Satan. Moving on with the poem then, and uh, here we have some more smut. Thence mystic knots mac great abuse on young good men fond keen and cruce. When the best walklum in the house, by cantrip wit, is instant made no worth a loose, just at the bit. So a lot of Scots here, and all well worth deciphering. So magic knots make great abuse on young good men, young husbands. Fond, keen, and cruce, overconfident. When the best walklum in the house, by cantrip wit, is instant made no worth a loose, just at the bit. So walklum, work tool, but signifying penis. It's not just the English bard that loves a good knob joke. Uh, cantrip wit, magical or evil wit or art. Uh, made worthless just at the bit. That's the waklum, the tool, the penis. Made worthless just at the bit. Just on the point of ejaculation. So magic spells stopping a young keen husband from performing, basically. The uh, Reverend Hugh Blair actually advised Burns to leave these lines out of the second edition of his poems, as they were indecent. Not content to leave the 12 pint cow dry as a bull, the devil's been drying up husbands as well. Next we have a slightly larger scale crime. When thaws dissolve the snowy horde and flute the jingling icy board, ten water kelpies haunt the ford by your direction, and knighted travellers are allured to their destruction. Not much to gloss here. When thaws dissolve the snow and float the jingling icy surface, water kelpies will haunt the fords at the devil's command and lure travellers to their death. A premonition of some of the folkloric references in Tamashanta there, where another knighted traveller is lured into danger by devilish apparitions. And we get even more of a shanterish ring in the following stanza. And after your moss-traversing spunkies, decoy the white that late and drunk is, the bleezing, cursed, mischievous monkeys delude his eyes, till in some miry slough he slunkies, near mere to rise. Spunkies, which are will-o'-the-wisps, false lights that mislead travellers, or, as the poet puts it, decoy the white, the fellow that is late and drunk. Those bleezen, meaning blazing, cursed, mischievous monkeys, trick him into some miry slough or ditch, never to rise again. When Mason's mystic word and grip in storms and tempests raise you up, some cock or cat your age mourn stop, or strange to tell, the youngest brother you would whip of strot to hell. Here Burns is mocking the Freemasons' supposed ability to conjure up the devil with a word and grip, a secret word and a handshake. Some cock or cat your rage shall stop, or strange to tell, the youngest brother you would whip off straight to hell. Here we have a further sense of the randomness and maybe the pettiness of the devil's choice of victim. And on a more serious level, Burns is attacking the Calvinist view 
of predestination, this, that sinners and believers in God cannot affect their salvation by doing good. And therefore, strange to tell, even the youngest brother is whipped off straight to hell. The conservative Calvinist wing of the Church of Scotland were known as the Popular Party, whose members were called Old Licht. Donny O'Rourke writes that Burns took issue with the Old Licht insistence that grace alone, without regard to conduct, could guarantee the salvation of God's elect. Such defiance was becoming popular among more moderate believers, such as those that Burns would find amongst the new Licht of the Edinburgh Enlightened. But rural Ayrshire was conservative to the point of fanaticism, and it is no surprise that the Kilmarnock edition of Burns's poems makes less overt attacks on religion. It was a different story when Burns reached the capital. Edinburgh, as Nigel Leask writes, was the bastion of the moderates, and attacks on Ayrshire bigotry played well with the literati and the wider circle of Burns's polite patrons. As an example, here is Henry Mackenzie's review of Burns's poems from 1786, in which he writes... If we consider the ignorance and fanaticism of the lower class of people in the country where these poems were written, fanaticism of that pernicious sort which sets faith in opposition to good works, the fallacy and danger of which a mind so enlightened as our poets could not but perceive, we shall look upon his lighter muse not as the enemy of religion, though she has been somewhat unguarded in her ridicule of hypocrisy. This isn't to say that Burns's rebellion didn't affect his friendships and connections in Edinburgh. While staying in the capital, he had an affair with Agnes McElhose. Inspiration for the poem A Fond Kiss, Clorinda, as she called herself, wrote to Burns about her discovery of his anti-Calvinist feeling, saying, I guessed it was so by some of your pieces, but the confirmation of it gave me a shock I could only have felt for one I was interested in. You will not wonder at this when I inform you that I am a strict Calvinist, one or two dark tenets accepted, which I never meddle with. Although Burns, or Sylvander, as he was called by Agnes, gave a somewhat equivocal response in these letters, elsewhere he was adamant. In a letter dated the 2nd of August 1788, he wrote, I am in perpetual warfare with that doctrine of our reverend priesthood, that we are born into this world bond slaves of iniquity and heirs of perdition, wholly disinclined to that which is good, until by a kind of spiritual filtration or rectifying process called effectual calling. The efforts of Burns and other critics of such doctrines would eventually mean that Calvinism, as Edwin Muir wrote, once feared as a power or hated as a superstition, became absurd under the attack of common reason. While he may be addressing the devil, by sounding a note of familiarity and even affection for old Horney, Burns is undermining the Kirk's most potent figure of fear and oppression. The real enemy is not old Horney, but the old Licht, and of the enemy's enemy, Burns is making a friend. Moving on with the poem, we have a series of stanzas displaying Burns's reading of Paradise Lost. Lang syne in Eden's bonny yard, when youthful lovers first were paired, and all the soul of love they shared the raptured hour, sweet on the fragrant flowery sward in shady bower. Lang syne, as you know, no doubt know from New Year's celebrations, means long ago or long since. So long ago in Eden, Adam and Eve shared all the soul of love on the fragrant flowery sward, or sward in a shady bower. In an earlier version of this stanza, Burns brings the Eden reference closer to home. Lang syne in Eden's happy scene, when strapping Edie's days were green, and Eve was like my bonny Jean, my dearest part. A dancing, sweet, young, handsome queen with guileless heart. 
He may have had in mind another Habby stanza written by one of his literary heroes, Robert Ferguson, who begins his poem, Call a Water, with the lines, When Father Edie first pat speed in the bonny year the ancient Eden, his armory had nae liquor laden to fire his mow, nor did he thole his wife's upbraiden for being foe. Ferguson had died at the age of 24 in an Edinburgh madhouse. The city's failure to recognise his talent and reward, Burns's hero, inspired the following lamenting lines from the bard. O Ferguson, thy glorious parts, ill-suited laws, dry, musty arts, my curse upon your Wednesday hearts, ye Edinburgh gentry. The tithe of what you waste at carts would stowed his pantry. But back to the bonny ancient yard of Eden, and the poet is rounding on his addressee. Then you, ye old snick-drawing dog, ye come to paradise incog, and plead on man a cursed brogue, black be your faw, and gied the infant weld a shog, maist ruined all. Takes a couple of attempts to work out the rhymes on this one. Again, I might not be getting them all right. Then you, he says, again familiar, ye old snick-drawing dog, you old sly dog. Snick-drawing might carry a sense of of opening, of creeping in, insinuating oneself. Snack is a way of unlatching something. Uh, you come to paradise incog, incognito, disguised. But notice there is no mention of the sinister serpent. Burns wants us still, even in the devil's most infamous action, to have him described affectionately as a sly old dog and not a snake. And played on man a cursed brog, brog a trick, Black be your fa, fa just f a apostrophe meaning fall, and gied the infant weld a shog, a shock, a shake, maist ruined ah, oh, almost ruined everything. Now in the next stanza, the speaker continues to trivialise the devil's biblical appearances. Do you mind that day when in a buzz we reek it duds and reest it giz? You did present your smooty fizz mang better folk and sklinted on the man of Uz, your spiteful joke. The poet is asking, do you remember the day when in a bustle, a flurry, with smoking clothes and a scorched wig, you presented your smutty face among good folk, then squinted at the man of Uz, meaning Job, your spiteful joke? Although it was God who unleashed the devil on Job, casting him in a somewhat subservient role, Burns makes him sound more like a chimney sweep or a mere smudge-faced swindler. With reek it duds and reest it giz. And how you got him he a thrall and brack him out a house and hall while scabs and butchers did him gall with bitter claw. And loust his ill-tongued wicked skull was worst of all. More of the same as the poet doesn't refer to the killing of Job's children or the taking away of his wealth, only the loused, slackened, or unleashed, ill-tongued, wicked skull, uh, the tongue of, the, of his scolding wife, which was worst of all, apparently. The tragedy and testing of Job is replaced with a scene of man beset by nagging wife, a kind of Punch and Judy domestic farce. But are your doings to rehearse, your wily snares affecting fierce? Sin that day, Michael, did you pierce? Down to this time, were ding a lallan tongue or erse in prose or rhyme. 
The poet is stopping this recounting of the devil's best bits by saying to recount them all, your wily snares and your fighting fierce, since the day that Angel Michael wounded him in battle, as recounted in Paradise Lost. To tell all of that down to now would beat or get the better of a tongue, whether or not he was speaking in Lowland Scots or Gaelic, or whether or not he was writing in prose or in rhyme. Basically, he's given up on that scheme and wants to move on. But now, old clutes, I ken ye thinkin', a certain bardies rantin', drinkin'. Some luckless hour will send him linkin' to your black pit. But faith, he'll turn a corner junkin' and cheat ye yet. As we come to the end of the poem, the speaker acknowledges himself, saying to old clutes, or old hoofs, I know you're thinking a certain bard is ranting and drinking and soon will be sent down to hell for you to uh, torture at your pleasure. But no, instead the poet promises he will turn, jinking, dodging and cheat the devil yet. By confessing that he is hellbound, but adding that he is smart enough to dodge Satan, Burns' speaker is subtly implying here, as Carol McGurk says, that this bardy is more sinful than the deal. But fare ye weel, old Nicky Ben, a wad ye take a thought on men. Ye Ablins might, a dinner ken, still have a steak. I'm way to think up on ye den, even for your sake. In his final stanza, the speaker wishes the devil, old Nicky Ben, the best, saying, Oh, would you take a thought and mend? You perhaps might, I don't know, have a stake meaning a chance at redemption, perhaps even salvation. I'm sad, the poet says, to think upon your den, even for your sake. And if the devil has a stake, a shot at forgiveness, then so does the speaker. Here, as Carol McGurk says, Burns announces that he considers himself salvageable. The doctrine of predestination, says McGurk, as interpreted by old licked preachers, saw sinners as helpless to change. But in this poem, rehabilitation of devils and even poets, remains theoretically possible. Burns may have been toasted and patronised in equal measure by the patricians of Edinburgh, but his intended readership was always, he claimed, his rustic inmates of the hamlet. This is why he chose to revive old verse forms, which as one unimpressed reviewer wrote in December 1786, the measure of many of these pieces is a faithfully copied form most in fashion among the ancient Scottish bards, but has been, we think with good reason, laid aside by the later poets. Burns announced his aims in the preface to the Kilmarnock edition, which is, as Ian McIntyre describes, a cross between a manifesto and a sales pitch, beginning with what could be mistaken for a modest disclaimer. The following trifles, writes Burns, are not the production of the poet, who, with all the advantages of learned art, perhaps amid the elegances and idlenesses of upper life, looks down for a rural theme, with an eye to Theocritus or Virgil. McIntyre comments that such venerated names were for Burns a fountain shut up and a book sealed. His readers, it was implied, must take him as they found him. His subjects, he said, were the sentiments and manners he felt and saw in himself and his native compeers, and he wrote for them in his and their native language. And while his comic poems tended to be most heavily rooted in that native language, they were not obscure to outsiders. As one favourable critic wrote in Newtown and Country magazine in August 1787, in humorous and satirical poems, our author appears to be most at home. 
Poems like Address to the Deal are his masterpieces, and happily in these instances his humour is neither local nor transient, for the devil, the world and the flesh will always keep their ground. I certainly agree with that, and I hope this episode has made you think the same. If not, I'll have another bite of the apple next Burns Night, I guess. But that's everything for today. I thank you very much for listening or watching if you're on YouTube. Once again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving a review, subscribing, or buying me a coffee using the link below. I'll be back soon with another episode. Until next time, happy reading. And dart it twelve pint hockey's gain and yells the